works on me just as much as he does anybody else, right? All right, well, with all that being said, let's pray, and we'll look at the text for today. Father, even as I was just mentioning these thoughts and uh, last week, uh, it's just a real reminder that you're God and we're not. And I want to thank you for interrupting uh, the latter part of the service, uh, just to shut things down, maybe, maybe even to ask us some questions about whether we're just going through the motions or not, whether we're really engaged and paying attention. Lord, you have given to us the words of life, the words that lead us into eternity. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us even this morning to stay focused. It's easy for all of us to get distracted and even be a distraction. We don't mean to be, but sometimes that happens. And so may we just reserve this time now for you to speak to our hearts and hopefully glean something of truth that will help us this week to be a support to someone else to be an encouragement, to give words of hope to someone, or even just to give our own hearts hope. So we trust you and we thank you, Lord, that we have this time together. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are other birthdays here in this room this month. How many of you all are having a birthday in June? We normally do this. Miss Jane is. Barbara is. Today's your birthday, right? Aww. I should have Hamp come up and sing. We'll do it at the end. (laughs) Sing happy birthday. (laughs) All right. Well, happy birthday, everybody. All right. Well, let's stand and let's look at the text today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 19. And then we're going to skip to verse 23. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all the land. All right. Amen. You may be seated, please. Now, you notice that I skipped over a very important section of the text. I'm not skipping over it. We're going to come back to it, not today, but at another point. Uh, And I wanted to do that just because there's so much in this particular section that I wanted to talk about. It just wasn't going to be enough time to deal justly with the whole thing. And so that's why we're doing that. Now, you know, as well as I do, at least I hope you do, that the Old Testament is filled with New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming of Jesus. And those prophecies were given to Israel, and that was because Israel was very wayward in her life. She was a nation that just had completely, I shouldn't say completely, but almost completely turned the word of the Lord upside down. You know, tradition had become so much more critical, and their ways of thinking had deviated from the truth of God's word. And so there were prophecies throughout telling the people that the Messiah would come. And when he came, he would bring to them deliverance. Just listen to some of these. Some are very familiar to you, and you'll you'll know that right away. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. I wish we had time to spend on these verses, but we don't. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Now that was through Isaiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, to the Hebrew people. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And then again in Malachi 4, 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from a stall. And these are just some. I mean, they're depending on who you look at, uh, 300, 400 uh, prophecies. I should give you the exact number, but I didn't look up the exact number of the prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus is coming as him being the deliverer. 
I love this part in Malachi because it speaks to my heart about the skipping of the calves. Now, some of you will know what, what is being talked about here. Some of you who grew up on a farm and you've seen little calves being led out into the field from the stall and the enjoyment that they have. I've been around cows, but I mostly was raised around horses. And I remember one time in particular as I was taking one of the horses out to the field in the farm that I grew up on. Her name was Ginger. And uh, I had just gotten through the sand lot in the back of the barn and uh, gone through the gate and just at the gate there unhooked her lead from her halter and she spun around and kicked her hind legs in the leg in, in the air to the point where literally one of her hooves was right there. I remember seeing her hoof in the blink of an eye right there that had just been a little bit over from me. And she wasn't trying to kick me. She was just so excited about being let out of the stall, which is what Malachi is talking about here. And the closest my wife and I can come is to our bunny, Mo who we let out at night, and he likes to roam around, but when he comes out, he just jumps and kicks and twists and just as fast as bunnies can run, does circles around the room, down the hallway and back, and then he flops over because he's out of breath. But it's because he's so excited. He's just really happy. Well, that's what Malachi's talking about here. The day is coming. God is saying to Israel that the Messiah will come. Now we pick up in Matthew, and Matthew says, guess what? He's come. He's here. And so there's great room to be excited. And Matthew does this by documenting all these things that we've studied so far. His amazing power. His ability to heal people of leprosy and other sicknesses. To um, cure, uh, heal people from, uh, rescue people from the storms. You remember when the disciples are out on the water? And even over the demonic world as God frees the demoniac from this legion of demons. But now we come to this amazing display of the Lord's power, which is the ultimate power of healing or raising someone from the dead. Raising somebody from the dead. Now, in my opinion, this is really the most amazing miracle that the Lord could ever do of all of his miracles because death is that weird topic that nobody really likes to talk about. Right? It's just that thing that... People find it so elusive, and even, and I'm talking about believers, you know, we've not died before. We don't know fully what it's going to be like. So in our humanness, now I'm not talking about outside of, I'm talking about in our humanness, not with our faith. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But even in our humanness, you and I still at times struggle with death and the finality of it all, just from a purely human perspective. And there are a lot of people who are very much afraid of death and really are wondering what life after death is going to be all about. Listen to a couple people's thoughts here as they address the subject of the fear of death. One person said, humans such as myself will experience death eventually. Everybody knows that, right? They'll know someone will die or they know somebody who's going to die. My aunt, they said, in fact, died in 2013. We were close since we were around the same age. Long story. Also, a dear friend just died this past January, they say. I fear death just because I know what I want in my future. And I've yet to experience it. This obviously is a younger person. I want to own a company that I can separate myself from and sell it off and enjoy spending time with my future children. I want to go through college, experience my first heartbreak. So many things in life that I have yet to do. And so there's that one perspective from the younger mind that says, I've got so much to look forward to. I don't want to talk about death right now. Then there's this other person who says this, this, referring to the fear, is probably because of oblivion. I know it's inevitable, but the fear of not knowing what could happen after we die, or the fear of not being able to feel what is around you one day, to not be able to sense anything, to not exist. The human mind is not designed to be able to imagine nothing. Even if you try to imagine, you may imagine a blank white or black background but that isn't nothing. It is something you've seen or come across. The only time our mind is blank or is thinking about nothing is when we sleep. But don't dream, which again is pretty rare. We fear oblivion directly or indirectly. And that's just a sampling of the mindset of people who think about the subject of death and the fear that comes along with it. But the glorious news is we have a God who has given to us the picture of what death really is. Amen? Right? 
and has taken care of it. He has removed the mystery of it. He's removed the fear of it. He's given to us the picture of what eternity is going to be for us, which is why Hosea could say in Hosea 13, 14, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Right? Death is removed in all of those ways by the believer because we know of the hope we have in Christ, which is also why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, this wonderful resurrection chapter we commonly call it, beginning in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise his name. So you and I this morning, we have a lot of hope, don't we? At least I hope you do. If you're a believer in Christ, you should. If you're not a believer, you're still questioning, still wondering a little bit about all of this, and God is kind of seeking you and intriguing you a little bit, then the message should be for you this morning as well. Now, I've broken this particular text up into three parts. Number one is Jesus' compassion for the living. Jesus' compassion for the living, and we see that in verse 18. Secondly, Jesus is moved by faith in verse 19. And then finally, Jesus' lordship even over death, even over death. So we'll break each one of those down. Let's start with the first one, Jesus' compassion for the living. Now, Matthew opens this particular scene where he left off last time as he was discussing for them all that fasting is about. You remember they were asking, John's disciples were asking Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples do or like we do? And Jesus gave them that answer that, well, fasting is not necessary when the groom is with you. That's a time of celebration. It's not a time of despair. That day will come. And then he led into the two illustrations about the cloth and the wineskins. And you remember the cloth becomes that picture of where Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not going to be just an attachment to your life. That's not how this works. I'm not an addendum. I'm not just something that comes along. You can take it or leave it. Kind of like that understanding of the cloth. It can't, you can't just sew me in to your life and figure that everything's going to be all right. In the same way, the wineskin, as he was talking to them about that, was you can't contain my spirit in something that's not born again. It's not going to be added to something that's old. Everything has to be made new. And so we understand from that then that Matthew now says, as Jesus was literally saying these things, and I'm assuming at the moment or very shortly after, a synagogue official comes and bows down before Jesus. Now, the synagogue, just to be clear about that, for those of you that may not know, is a worship center, a place of worship uh, for the Jews that was not the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem, uh, but the temple was too far away for many of the people, especially these folks who were in Capernaum, way up in the north, too far to travel. And so the Jews would establish synagogues, various places around the country where people could go and do their worshiping there. And so that's what this is being referred to. And there were officials there who were in charge over it, kind of like the ruling elders, I suppose. But these were different from elders in the sense that you would think of in the Old Testament. This was an official who had official charge over the synagogue. They would be responsible for the operations of what was happening in the synagogue. So this was not just a, a worker. This was somebody who was in an official capacity in the synagogue. But that's all we get from Matthew. He just kind of skirts past that because it's not his point, as we've seen, to give us all those details. But Mark and Luke give us a lot more details and tell us that this man's name was Jairus or Jairus, however you want to pronounce it, giving it a much personal, a much more personal feel. And because he was the chief ruler, he would also be known by basically all the people in Capernaum. This was a popular position, and so there'd be no way in his coming to Jesus, that he could hide himself from what he had done. This would be a big step, not just literally, but spiritually, making it a very humbling act on his part. Because you remember now, by this time, of course, we know that there was a lot of consternation growing between the Jews, especially the leaders, and who Jesus is. And so for him to be a synagogue official, obviously a man of faith, and we'll see that more, Coming to Jesus and bowing down to him is an incredible act of humility. But still he came. 
And not only did he come, as I just said, he bowed down to Jesus. Now, bowing down was a sign of uh, subordination, if you will. It was a common kind of thing to do to an official. So some commentators have questioned whether there was a genuineness in, in Jairus' heart as to who Jesus was in all its fullness. You know, in, others, in other words, some people have said that, well, maybe Jairus is really thinking he's a great teacher and he's doing amazing miracles, but not really ready to surrender to him as Lord. I happen to think that based on the context, that was not right, but that he is really having a change of heart. And he's not only coming just because of who Jesus is, but he recognizes fully who Jesus is. And after all, there was a great motivation for him to come. I mean, a huge motivation to do for his daughter what nobody else could do. I mean, more than likely, he was getting the picture about who Jesus was, maybe believing that Jesus was the Messiah, as I was saying, being a Jew, and that's very possible. The Jews knew the scriptures. They knew, as I read earlier, the, the prophecies of the coming Messiah. So perhaps this man, like we'll see later, Nicodemus, was a, a man who was understanding who Jesus was. And so he came. He came abandoning all of his concerns about his position or who he was. My question for myself as I was studying through this and for you this morning is, wouldn't you do the same thing? You think with me the, the struggle that must have been going on in this man's heart. I mean, this wasn't just a, a situation that something else could fix. His child, his daughter, was dying. There's nothing more serious than that, especially to a parent. And you say, well, of course I would come. And you would come. You would go to anybody, no matter what the cost would be. If you knew that your child was dying, and nobody could help them, you, and you heard about someone who had this ability to do these amazing things, you would go. You would seek him out, no matter what it would cost you, even if it cost you your reputation. And we do that now. I mean, some people I've talked to over the years that have gone to the hospitals and have had to have surgeries and whatnot have said to me, you know, this doctor kind of has the reputation of being a jerk, personally but I don't, I don't really care about that. I just want to know, can they do the job, right? And so even if a person doesn't have the greatest of reputations in, in their personality with people and they don't have the greatest bedside manner, when you're at your wit's end over fixing yourself or a loved one, you're going to go and you're going to seek out that person even if it costs you everything. And so I'll just ask you to put yourself in this man's place and just imagine his pain. Now, some of you have been there. Some of you know what it's like to lose a loved one at a young age. So troubled in mind and soul. It just consumes you and overwhelms you at the, the pain of it all. I can only imagine that this man was so full of fear, wondering what was going to happen. Would she be saved? This is my child. She's dying. Now, in the context of the way this is written between the gospel writers, Matthew says she was already dead. Meaning, contextually, in the timing of it all, according to Matthew, when the man came to Jesus, she was probably almost dead, but then gets the word that she has died, which is why he records it that way. Luke and John recorded as if she were not dead yet. And so there's kind of a little bit of a timing issue there, which is all that's being pointed out there. But the point is, this man was desperate. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And you know that. You've done that yourself. When your back is against the wall and you have nowhere to turn and you know that something has to happen, you will pull out the stops to make things happen. Like Jennifer Duncan, who was a young mom who had a small car accident while she was driving with her eight-month-old child in Texas. Uh, she pulled off to the side of the road and, and uh, somebody hit her, I guess. I'm not sure what the details were. Uh, and she got the child out of the car, and while she's standing there beside the car, the most dreadful thing happened. You know how people will get that look, and they'll forget what they're doing, and so other cars began to slam into one another, evidently, and, and the cars pushed over to her, and it knocked her and her baby off of a 30-foot drop over the bridge. According to this, this is a true story. And it says here that... Um, for her quick thinking, she turned her body into a human shield for her baby. 
He barely had a scratch, according to the story, as she used her body as that shield. However, mom wasn't so fortunate. She shattered her pelvis, broke nine bones in her back, fractured her legs, fractured her ribs, had spleen injuries, internal injuries, and even had to have a leg amputated. She spent two months in the hospital, one month in rehab, and had to move, have more than ten surgeries in seven months. But I'll bet you if you ask her again, she would do it all over to save her baby. Like Shelby Carter, who was a 21-year-old Wyoming woman caught in the second floor of a house fire. The article says that I'm not sure about all the details, but she evidently was with her babies, and when the authority found the baby, the baby was strapped in a car seat that had apparently been thrown from the second-story window as mom burned up in the fire. But what a rescue attempt that was by mom, CNN says, as she did what she could do in her last moments to save the baby. People do that, right? When people are pushed to the end, they will do whatever's necessary to make sure that that loved one is cared for safely. And so I think from the context, it seems clear that Jairus was very sincere about what he was doing. He knew that Jesus was his only help. Everything had come to a conclusion there, and this was what was necessary for his daughter. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the age of the girl, just that she was his daughter, but the other gospel writers tell us that she was 12, which is very interesting to me because if you know anything about the Jewish faith, you know that 12 is the age of uh, adulthood for children, 13 in some synagogues, depending on who they are. But 12, basically, that's when the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs happening, happen as, the, as a way to say that this child now is going to be looked at as an official adult. So the point is that she wasn't technically, in the mind of the people, or even to the father, a child anymore. But that doesn't matter as a parent, does it? I mean, a parent doesn't care how old their child is. Your child can be 30, 40 years old or even older if you're living so long and still they're your baby, right? And you'll do whatever's necessary. In fact, there's lots of moms and lots of dads who kind of feel pushed to the side when their kids grow up and start living their lives on their own and don't need you quite as much. And you find as a parent, hey, just let me do something because I'm your mom, I'm your dad, Still right? they're your baby. So you understand mm-hmm. that. And so I think and that's the situation here, that all that Jairus knew was his daughter was dying. Kind of so feel pushed to the side when their kids grow up help. and start and living their Jesus lives was on their the man. own. And so he came. And, don't need you quite as and he came in great faith. And we know that because of what he says. Look again at the text. Come lay your hand on her and she will live. What a powerful statement I think that's the situation here. Just come lay your hand on her and I know she will live. It's very similar to the centurion that we saw earlier. You know, the centurion servant had not died. You remember that? But was just and he came in great faith. And we know that because of what he says. Look again at the text. Come lay your hand on her. Well, kind of took that same approach, but just said, come lay your hand on her, and she will be healed. Just come lay your hand on her. I just wonder, do we believe like this? I mean, put yourself, you be Jairus for just a and ask yourself, do you have that kind of faith? Do you believe this morning that Jesus could raise your loved one from the dead? Lay your hand on her. And you say, well, of course I believe that. Would he? Do we believe Can we tag that little thought on the end of it all? Yeah, I believe. Of course he can do all things, but would he? I just wonder how much we miss in life because of our lack of faith. Faith is the key that unlocks the power of God. Now, God doesn't need us right now at this very moment. The sun is shining. God didn't ask us about our faith, about the sun shining, and about the world staying in its place. God does what God does. But so much of what we see in the text of Scripture when God is dealing with his people is the action of faith behind what motivates himself. God doesn't need us right now. In fact, in Matthew 17, we haven't gotten to this yet, but it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Let me read a couple of these things to you and see how Jesus addresses the subject of faith. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees. This is in Matthew 17, 14. And saying to him, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. 
Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? Do you just hear the agony of the Lord's heart there? I don't think he was trying to be mean-spirited at all. I think he was just saying, How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Go over a couple chapters in 21. Same gospel, Matthew. Picking up in verse 21. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, and Jesus had just cursed it because it did not produce fruit, and it withered right there on the spot. But even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Jesus answered Amazing statements of power behind faith. You remember one of the most popular statements is in Matthew 13, or scenes rather, when Jesus has come to his own hometown. But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast the carpenter's son, are these his brothers and sister? So we read in verse 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their All I'm saying is that, again, faith is the key to living this life and seeing the power of God unleashed. Again, God does what God does. But I wonder what God would do if we just had faith. Would your marriage be saved, for example? Would God change this or that if you just had faith in Him? What would He do? I don't know. Would your child come back to Him who's wavered in their faith? They lost the, if they've lost their spiritual direction, would they come back simply based on your faith? Or are we going to be like someone that I just recently talked to who told me about a loved one who, after a tragedy, was back in the hospital in the suicide because they just can't handle the things of life? Is that going to be our answer to the tragedy? Are we going to be like Jairus? Are we going to be like... Someone that I just By the Lord's will, I'm going to trust him for what his answer is. After a tragedy, that obviously is the greater and the better approach. The problem really is a lack of faith. That's where we miss so much in life. Again, not that God's going to heal everybody, like in the context of today, or every situation, or do whatever we want him to do. He might, based on what he's saying, if you have enough faith to believe him, but the problem is, too often, we resort to logic. That's where we Our minds take over where faith should be operative. And we reason through things and come up with answers that are human in their makeup instead of godly in their perspective. And we trust our own logic instead of what God can do. I don't like to use myself in illustrations, but since I live in my body, I'll give you an illustration. Because God works in my heart just like he does everybody else. All of you know, or at least most of you know, that I attend to live in university, and I'm not ashamed of that, although it's had its problems over the last years. We trust our own logic. God did amazing things in my life and our life as a family. Some of you have heard this story before, but uh, I remember when it came time to go to undergraduate and then go to seminary. We didn't have the money to do that. We were still living in Lunchburg at the time. But you know who were the most negative people to us concerning this? It wasn't the world. It was God's people. I'll never forget the number of people who were church folks, who were faith people, would say, how are you going to do that? You don't have any money. And we were taking a big step of faith. And God, I can tell you story after story how God just answered our prayers. To the tune of where we left when we finished undergraduate, the school owed me $2,500. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And I've often thought about those times in my life 
about how God has done things. I wonder, regardless of what you think of Dr. Falwell, I'm talking about Dr. Falwell Sr. He had his issues. There were times where Dr. Falwell would say something from the pulpit and I would just kind of cringe. Kind of thing, but I mean, what a man of faith. I've often thought, what if Dr. Falwell had said when he was walking along Candler's Mountain there, regardless of what you think of Dr. Falwell, I'm talking about Dr. going to be too hard. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. We've got the church over here on Thomas Road, and we don't need all of that college and university stuff. It's just, you know, it's just a thought. In my life, it's affected. Look at your life. Look at your children's lives. It would have been affected. Simply because he just obeyed and listened to what he believed God was telling him to do. Let's take it a little further. What if Billy Graham had said, we don't need all of that college. I don't know about that evangelism stuff. I mean, yeah, I want to see people saved and, you know, I love God's word and, and I and love preaching, but man, I don't, I don't know. No, nah, I don't think I'll go through with all of that. You think the world would be affected? Absolutely it would have been. How about Abraham? What if when God came to Abraham and made the promise with him, Abraham said, whoa, God, I am not doing that. That is just going to be way too much of a challenge and I'm not going there. What if Jesus had said, Father, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going after those people. They are sinful and disgusting. And I really like it here. I'm not going to leave my home with you to go get them. But he went. Now, Jesus was the epitome of faith, was he not? Doing only what the Father said to him. That's what he said. I only do what my Father says for me to do. He was the perfect example of faith. And so the point is, every day, beloved, should be a journey of faith. A journey of faith. Now, I'm not teaching something that you hear from people out there, that, oh, all your problems in life are because of your lack of faith. Well, I am saying, though, a lot of our problems are because of a lack of faith. Or a lot of solutions don't come because of our lack of faith. So I think we need to think about that. And the text brings this out. I'm also not trying to be insensitive. I'm not trying to just give some kind of platitude. Oh, in the midst of your misery, you just need to have more faith. I would never do that. I think that's wrong to do that. But there is an element of this in Scripture that gives us this example of this man's life of faith where his life was changed. And many people's lives have been changed. Scripturally, in the text recorded for us, year after year, for centuries rather, because of their faith. And that really becomes the point here. And this man had faith, and God did an amazing thing as a result of it, which takes us to the next point. Jesus is moved by our faith. He's compassionate towards us, but he's also moved by our faith. Look at verse 19. Jesus got up and began to follow him. And so did the disciples. Now all this man did was come to Jesus and say, come lay your hand on my daughter. Jesus says, okay. Because he knows what's going on. I've heard a lot of people say over the years, I don't want to trouble the Lord with such and such. You know, he's busy. He's got a lot of going on. And he's got much more important things to do. Well, the disciples felt that way too. You remember the scenario in Matthew 19 when the children come to him? Let me read it for us. There were some children who brought, were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. You know why they rebuked them? Because in that day, children were looking at like a, kind of like the vagabond of society kind of thing. They're little irritations, little blights on the world. <laughs> I mean, it's true. They were just kind of irritating. And so the disciples said, no, 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 no. The master's busy. Keep those kids away from them. You know, we'll take care of it in some other way, I'm sure is what they were thinking. But in verse 14, Jesus says, let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What was Jesus saying? He was instituting a lesson of faith. He's saying, look, if you want to know what my kingdom's like, it's going to be just like a child who just believes because you've told them. And that's the way children are, right? So the lesson was for the disciples. You guys need to have some faith like this. Because that's what moves me and that's what moves my father. It's not your reasoning ability or keeping people away or whatever it is. And so please just understand that you're not an irritation or interruption to Jesus. No matter what your need is, 
Jesus is willing to come meet that if it's in his will. He delights to do that. Listen to Malachi 3.10, another Old Testament prophecy. The issue is here that they were not giving to the Lord their due tithes. But notice what the Lord says, test me. In other words, let's operate in faith here. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. The Lord is saying, look, you think I'm not capable of meeting your needs? Trust me. This is faith. Let me show you. In James chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, in context, the Lord is talking about wisdom. But he's also saying you don't get what you need because your heart is more selfish for what you really want than what's really best for you and your motives are wrong, both of which keeps you from receiving what you need. Too often, we operate out of what we say faith. We operate out of faith, but really the, the issue is our faith is generated out of our own selfish motives. We're not really looking for God to do what he wants to do in us. We just want something from him. That's another catch that we have to watch out for. So the point is, when we're living by faith, Jesus will interrupt his schedule. I mean, this is just clear. He will interrupt his schedule to meet us where we need him most. Aren't you thankful for that? How many times have you been in some situation in life and all you could do was just call out the name Jesus? And he met you, didn't he? Again, I don't like to use illustrations of my life, but it's so pertinent to me. I've told you about the time where we lost our children, right? And all I can remember is, for those of you that want to know more about that, I'll tell you about that later. Um, Very unintentional. Just one of those day things that happened. And I remember the only words that could come out of my mouth were Jesus. I couldn't say anything else. It was just Jesus. It was like, I need you now. And he came. He didn't visibly manifest himself to me, but he brought us back our children. It's just a glorious thing. And so all of this is saying faith is the issue. Faith is what will cause God to move when we need him to move. Now, Jairus could have said, like the others, as the illustration I was mentioning, what's the point? My daughter's going to die. I mean, there's just nothing that anybody else can do. And furthermore, people are going to laugh at me. It's going to be humiliating. So why go? Why trouble anybody? But he didn't do that. And he didn't do that because God had a message for us. What if the church then, taking his example, would say, you and I would say, we're not going to do this or that because it'd just be too hard. What if we made those kind of claims and statements? And we say, we live by faith. Pastor Hamp and the team just led us in a beautiful psalm, song, the very first one, talking about faith and how we trust him by faith. And it's so ironic to me that we will come in here on a Sunday after Sunday and we praise and worship the Lord that we believe in, but yet when it comes to the difficult issues of life, we forget about Him. And we start reasoning how to get through certain things. So if you think, what's the point in calling on Jesus? Or what are people going to think? Is He really going to do any good? Then Jesus, listen, Jesus may let your daughter die. I'm just using an illustration here to try to draw the point or let you face the reality of your consequences. Why? Because you're working through human logic instead of operating out of faith. But if you do operate out of faith, maybe, just maybe, God will do a miracle. Who knows? That's up to him. Now let's go to verse 23. This gets us to the third part. Jesus' lordship over death. So when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd, I want to pause right there because there's some interesting things that are going on here that tell us about the heart of the Hebrews at the time. You will remember that in Jesus' day it was customary to hire hire mourners when a loved one was lost. Can you imagine such a thing? In fact, I think I'll start a business. Pastor Bruce will do your service for you and I'll even get professional mourners to come and be a part of the service. Well, I'm making light of something that was very serious to the people there because in Jesus' time, 
That was a real thing. And so by the time we're told, Matthew says, Jesus gets to the house, there's already been enough time for the preparation of these professional mourners to come in, evidently. And Mark tells us that when Jesus got there, there was a commotion of flute players probably playing some distorted music. And the reason was, commentators say, is because that would be the sound that would display the most confusion and chaos, which is what death symbolizes. And so these mourners wanting to really live up the moment would play music that would emphasize the sad feelings, right? And that happens, doesn't it? You remember going to the high school dances and the proms and the music that's played out there would be like all to fit the moment. You do that now. You put on music depending on what you're feeling at the time. And so these people would come in and they would play the sounds that would be the most upsetting according to the situation. And the size of the band, as I'm calling it, was probably larger than it was for most people because the number of mourners and musicians was determined by the amount of money a person had. And this is directly from the Talmud, in fact. This Talmud required that the husband is bound to bury his wife, and I'm quoting from, some, from the Talmud here, his dead wife and to make lamentations and mourning for her according to the custom of all countries. Also, the very poorest among the Israelites was not allowed, will not allow her less than two flutes and one wailing woman. So there you go. At a minimum, the Talmud, which is a commentary on the law basically, is... No matter how poor you are, you have to have at least two flute players and one woman off in the background wailing. Okay? Interesting scenario. I have not been into that scenario, but I've been in some interesting places, but this would take the cake. Now, if you're a synagogue official, however, you had plenty of money, and so you would you'd obviously be able to afford more than the minimum, so you could probably get the whole band of flute players. And so maybe at least part of the band, and more than one wailing woman, you could have a whole quartet of wailing women. Right? It would just be an awesome scenario here. This crowd of noisy sobbers heightening this experience, which would just be absolutely ridiculous. Now, on top of that, though, the singers would throw in the names of lost loved ones just to make it even worse. Oh, dear Aunt Betsy... She's died, <laughs> Royley. She's died a hundred years ago. Bless her soul. I mean, this is kind of what it was like. But it was all in an attempt to make the situation horrible. And so you can imagine that scenario there, which the Lord evidently gets pretty irritated with. Why? Because He's the Lord of life, right? He's not the Lord of death. Now, Matthew calls all that in verse 23. Every word in the scripture is important, right? We know that. Notice what Matthew says about that scene. He says it was a noisy disorder, if you want to get a picture of what that was like. I'm thankful that we don't go through all of that now. But notice what Jesus says here. He comes in, he sees all this, and he says, Leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. Boy, what a staggering statement. Imagine coming into the room, if you're at Hill and Wood, or you're over here in, in, at Stannersville at the funeral home or wherever, and the family has gathered around a person who has died and are greatly distraught. And you say, everybody leave, they're not really dead. I remember doing a funeral one time down here at Hill and Wood. This was a number of years ago. Family was not believers. And there are times where families call or the funeral homes help families find a pastor to do the service. And this was a girl who had been killed in a tragic car accident suddenly. And so they called me and asked if I would do it. And for me, it was an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, if you've been in Hill and Wood, you know that there's the main uh, sanctuary there. But then you've got these opening rooms where they can open up the sidewalls. Well, all of this was packed, just person after person. Imagine for a minute me coming up to the podium and saying, folks, I just got some good news for you. She's not really dead. She's asleep. What do you think the response would be? You're an idiot, right? What a lunatic. Get this, get this guy off the platform. Well, I have to imagine that's, what ha that's what's happening here. Now, the Lord's not trying to be insensitive. The Lord of all people is the most sensitive, right? He would have been terribly sensitive. That's why he's 
really disturbed by all this. I think what he's saying to us through this is that, listen, there's never a reason for one of my children to be disturbed to the point where you should have some show like this. That's not the hope that my people have. I was talking with one sister this week who lost a dear friend last week, suddenly. I was supposed to have lunch with them this past Thursday and got the word just a few days prior to that that she had suddenly passed away. It was tragic, heartfelt. You could imagine the hurt and the pain. But the joy of it is knowing from her own words that she knows and the lady was a believer, both are believers, and they can have the hope of seeing one another again. That's the heart of a believer, right? That's the hope that we have. My dear friend Kevin, who we've been friends of friends with for years and years, just spent the last month and a half, actually the last couple years, in a very similar situation that our family spent with my dad and mom, watching his mom go down, and little by little, um, just continuing to deteriorate. But what a joy it's been to be able to text and talk and know that she's a believer and he's a believer and, and, and everything's going to be okay. Again, that's the heart of a true believer, which is why Paul said in 1, Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you'll not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus... For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we shall always be with the Lord. But listen to this verse. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort each other. Why is Paul saying that? Because everybody knows that when death comes, there's the need for comfort. We need that. What's interesting to me is that everywhere in Scripture, when God refers to a believer dying, he never refers to them as dying, but always asleep. It's fascinating, really. And by the way, did you know that the word cemetery means sleeping place? It's not a place for dead people at least from a believer's perspective. Did you know also that when a person dies as a believer, the Bible has already said just never uh, refers to them as anything other than with the Lord? Always that way, which is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is why Jesus could walk into the scene and say, the girl is not dead. She's just asleep. Because there is an eternal life. And Jesus says, I am the God of it. The sad reality is, like these people, unfortunately, people don't really believe. They just don't believe. So instead, notice what the text says, they laughed at him. Notice the word at. It doesn't say with. There's a difference between laughing with somebody and laughing at somebody, right? We all know that. This says they laughed at him, taking us back to what we said earlier. Have you ever laughed at the Lord's ability? Now think hard, because you might be surprised. The Lord says to you, I want you to forgive so-and-so, even though they've not shown any signs of repentance. I'm not forgiving them. You don't know how much they've hurt me. Lord, come on. What we're really doing is we're laughing at the Lord, at the words of the Lord. I'm not going to do that. Or I'm not going to give my time to help so-and-so who's treated me such and such. Why should I do that? When the Lord says, no, you love your enemy. Or I'm not going to stick with that person after all these years the way he or she's treated me. I'm not going to do that. Oh, really? We don't really laugh at the Lord? Yeah, we do. How about this? The Lord says, you know what? Because you're my child now and you're part of the church, I want you to teach a Sunday school class. You go, right? I'm not going to teach a Sunday school class. I'm terrified to stand in front of somebody. I don't know the Bible that well. No, God, come on. I'm not going to do that. 
That's, that's, that's a joke. Right? We do it. God may say, I want some of you guys to be a, an elder or a deacon. I'm not spiritual enough to do that. Or to be, like I said, uh, some leading in ministry. I don't have that ability. I'm, come on, you, you got to be kidding me. Me? Seriously? No, come on. Yeah, we laugh at the Lord when the Lord is dead serious. Because what he wants is for us to operate out of faith, not our own reasoning. But that's what they did. And so in verse 25, notice what happens. Jesus puts them out. Now, again, I don't want to over-spiritualize this because the text doesn't say this, but I just have to wonder in my own mind, could it be a little bit of a picture of the future where the Lord says to those who would not trust him eternally that he puts them out of the kingdom, will not let them come in? I don't know. Just a thought. Matthew doesn't tell us this also, but Mark and Luke tell us Jesus keeps only the mother and the father. And that would make sense. Right? The father is full of faith. Mom probably is too. And he keeps Peter, James, and John with him as well. So going over to the bed, he takes the little girl by the hand and he commands her to wake up. And he, he says to her these words in Greek. In Mark 5 we get these. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but the word is talitha. I think I'm pronouncing that right, which means maiden, and kume, which means arise. In other words, little girl, arise. Luke 8.55 says, her spirit returned and she rose immediately because of the commandment of the Lord. You may be thinking, well, back to what we said in the very beginning, why didn't the Lord just speak the word? Why did he go physically into the house? And that's a good question. I have to make some assumptions here because the Lord doesn't tell us, but I believe because of this particular situation, unlike what we've seen so far, death is so different. Death is final. Death is so alarming for the soul. And I I just wonder if the Lord in his compassion, his love for this man and the man's willingness to walk by faith, Jesus wanted to go and be in physical presence with the man as he was struggling with this. And you and I enjoy that, don't we? I mean, how joyful is it when a loved one passes away and there's family around us? I was telling the earlier service that when mom passed away, many of you came down two hours to the funeral home to honor us. And I remember standing there in the line and watching your faces as you came through. And I can't tell you the overwhelming joy that I felt in my heart as you came to support us in our time of need. You became Jesus to us. We needed that. It's the same thing when Dad passed away. And so I believe that the Lord's message here to us is that when a person is experiencing tragedy in their life, you go and be my hands. You be my mouth. You be my feet. You be my physical manifestation as I work through you. And that will bless us, doesn't it? How many times have you been blessed when somebody just calls you because they're just, hey, just thinking about you. Just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I heard such and such and just want to let you know if there's anything I can do, I want to be here to help you. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? And so I think the Lord is giving us that picture of the nearness of his heart as he feels the pain of what it means to lose somebody. And Jesus would have experienced that. Evidently by this time he would have lost his father his earthly father. And we don't know much about that life at all except for his early years, but somewhere along the line, Joseph evidently died or went to sleep. And Jesus felt that as a young boy, felt that as a young man, whenever that was. And so he would have had a tenderness to the loss of this this man. But boy, what joyful occasion it was going to turn out to be. As Jesus has the ability to experience with us and be with us as we go through these, tragic, these, these trying times, but yet knows what he's going to do for those who are believers. And so Jesus, again, may not be with you physically presence, present, but there is a great blessing to have him in that way. Now, in this case, the parents got their child back. Some parents do not, and that's always reserved to the Lord. But the faith-filled parents know no matter whether the child comes back or not, no matter what the age of the child is, if they're a believer, they're going to see him again, right? And that's what we base our hope off of.
And I love this because, you know, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any more need for flute players. We're not going to need to have wailing women, right? Praise the Lord. We're not going to need to have taps played, as awesome as that is, as a military funeral or some memorial. No need for any special services as we gather. No potluck lunches afterwards, right? Oh, you can have the potlucks if you want them. But we're not going to do it because we're sorrowful. I was telling Miss Virginia this morning, we're not going to need ham biscuits anymore, right? We don't need the PowerPoint presentation of our loved one because we're going to be there together and we're going to enjoy eternity forever. What a beautiful occasion it's going to be. So Jesus' Matthew's final words to us right after this in verse 26 is, the news spread throughout all the land, and it should have, right? Listen, do you understand that the reason why we're here on a Sunday morning is because we're hearing the story of what Jesus did so that the news can spread in the land, right? And we weren't there, but we've certainly been present when what, with him when he's done stuff to us and in us. We were there when he saved us. And so our job then is to go and spread the news. Look at my God. Look at how awesome he is. Look what he did for me. Do you imagine for a second the life of Jairus changed? you imagine that he was a guy who spread the gospel? I think so. Because he saw the Lord do amazing things. And we have as well. All right. Well, let's pray together and then let's prepare our hearts for communion. Which really, again, sharing this with the early service, uh, it's always so appropriate that we... We really could do communion every Sunday. We won't, but we could do it every Sunday because it just fits with the text of Scripture so wonderfully. You realize communion is an act of faith, right? In fact, as you take out your little element there, let's pray, and then as you take out your little element there, let's let's talk through that just for a second, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Father, we come to this portion where we close out now the teaching and the understanding of your word to observe this ordinance that you left for us. We're reminded of your sacrifice and your great work to bring us into your kingdom. Lord, as we hear the truths of your word, may we take them to heart, as we should do every Sunday, and begin to apply them in ways that you will show us. I suspect that there will be great opportunities this week to operate in faith. There will be things that come up in each of our lives that will cause us to have to trust you. We know that that's purposeful because you want us to see you for who you are. So, Lord, as we face those things this week, I pray that you give us clarity, help us to remember even to the text for today, to be the Jairuses or the Jairuses, that we might live out our faith in everything that we do these coming days. Now, Father, as we take part in this communion, Lord, would you just fill our hearts with the freshness of your presence? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to the faith that Paul talks about here. Beginning in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, always the familiar passage. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. He's talking about his own faith there. I received this, but I'm giving it to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In just a second, I want you to take that cracker, but I want you to think of this as an act of faith. You and I weren't there. But God has left us this as a reminder of him, and we take part in it in faith, saying, Lord, I believe that this is a representation of your body. Not, not the body, as some would teach. This is a symbol of your body that was given. So take part in in that through faith. Go ahead and eat that cracker. In verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup after supper also, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That too is an act of faith. Even among the disciples in that moment, it was an act of faith. They didn't really know what the new covenant was. They didn't understand that. Listen, 
you and I don't really know what the eternal realm is going to be, do we? No, we don't really know. We haven't been there yet. We believe by faith. So take part in the juice, as Jesus said, as a reminder in faith that this was his blood shed for you to give you eternal life, to rescue you from the darkness, from Satan's hands. Here's another act of faith, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Just now what you did was an act of faith saying, Lord, I believe that you're coming again. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. That's faith. It requires faith. And that's what moves the heart of God. Father, we thank you again for our opportunity to be together as we do every Sunday. Lord, you have so blessed us over the last year and years prior. As we think back to Miss Louise's life and the great testimony that she was, and now having been with you for lots of years now, would have been 106 in this life. Lord, we just rejoice over the fact that many saints have come and gone and they're safe with you. And we long to be there one day. But even now, we pray that you would help us to be like this dear man in this text, that we would live by such great faith. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for this powerful time together, we pray now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you all. You're dismissed.